Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me as we together study the Come Follow Me lesson for August 31st through September 6th. And this week we will be discussing Helaman chapters 13 through 16. Well, in my life, uh, we got a little bit of normalcy here in the U.S. this week as my kids return to school uh, full time. Hopefully yours, if you have them, uh, uh, have been uh, back in school full time as well, bringing a little bit of normalcy and certainly some peace and quiet throughout the day. Uh, You know, things are starting to return to normal a little bit. We're close, we hope. We'll see what happens over the next little bit. I obviously am uh, still in the U.S., still don't have plans, immediate plans to return back to Hong Kong, although it's becoming uh, more inevitable, I think, as things get a little bit closer to, to normalness, but we'll uh, simply have to see what happens over the next few weeks. Well, today we are going to finish off the lesson, uh, the, the book of Helaman, uh, with our final lesson as we study the last four chapters in Helaman. If you recall last week, uh, as we finished, we, uh, we, we talked about Nephi uh, and uh, the amazing prophet that he was and the, and the powers that the Lord gave him, including, if you recall, he was given the sealing power and that he was able to seal the heavens shut and whatever he said uh, was manifest on earth because of his righteousness, because of his will had so perfectly aligned with God's will. And the Lord used that famine to bring the Nephites back to repentance. And they had repented for a time, but only three years later, we find the Gideonton robbers are back amongst their midst uh, doing the bad things that Gideonton robbers are prone to do. And so it's in this uh, situation in which the Nephites, this pride cycle is uh, picking up steam uh, occurring very quickly now where the Nephites go from righteousness to wickedness very quickly, uh, being triggered by somewhat small things uh, comparatively that we find ourselves as we enter into chapter uh, 13 and we are introduced to Samuel who is a Lamanite prophet, because at this point, the Lamanites have in fact become more righteous than the Nephites have. And so the tables have turned on the typical uh, narrative that we have really throughout the Book of Mormon. And remember, this record is being kept by Mormon, who is a devout uh, Nephite, uh, but also a very much a realist as he is watching his people, the Nephite people, be destroyed uh, and, and so, you know, he is certainly one who is, uh, in all cases, rooting or we could say biased towards the Nephites. Uh, but at this time, he is not, certainly not above calling out the Nephites for their, for their wickedness. And uh, that's very much what one of the themes of today's lesson is, is that these Nephites, these, these blessed, these covenant people, these chosen people of the Lord uh, have forgotten their covenants and they are not doing what they are supposed to do. Uh, and as a result, uh, and, and on the other hand, the Lamanites, who throughout you know, all of the Book of Mormon that we've read so far, who's in some ways really their sole justification in existence, at least according to, to Nephite uh, philosophies, is to call the, is to remind the Nephites that they have to trust upon the Lord. It's to be that that thorn in the side of the Nephites to remind them of their own weakness and their own uh, imperfections. And and that's, so again, so far in the narrative, that's really what we've seen uh, the, the purpose of Lamanite existence being. But now they have a very different purpose. Now they are more righteous than the Nephites. And it's the Nephites that are in uh, need of repentance and need of uh, calling upon the Lord uh, to get back to where they should be. 
Uh, and so Samuel went to the land of Zarahemla. He apparently is not from there, but he went up to Zarahemla, this, this beautiful Nephi stronghold, uh, who last week we read, or as, as we started the book of Helaman read, was, was attacked and, and taken over by the, by the Lamanites. Um, but uh, they, they've, they've gotten it back. And so this should still be a Nephite stronghold. Um, and it is, except the problem is now it is a, because it is now a Nephite stronghold, it is also a place of great wickedness because the Nephites are not doing what they're supposed to do. So Samuel, he goes up to the city of Zarahemla uh, to teach the gospel, to tell the Nephites that they need to repent. And again, this is the same Zarahemla that uh, the prophet Nephi is a citizen of, that he returns, last week we read, he returns to Zarahemla, sees its great wickedness, prophesies of the murder of the, of the chief judge. So this is, you know, this is the place, this Zarahemla. This is, uh, you know, this is their Jerusalem. This is their Salt Lake City. This is uh, the big place for the Nephites. And uh, this Lamanite comes and tries to teach them the gospel there, and they flat out reject him. Certainly a big part of their rejection, as we'll see later, is because he is a Lamanite. And Lamanites aren't supposed to be the ones that are telling the Nephites to repent. It's supposed to be the other way around. This you know, takes what the normal situation and stands it on, the, on its head. And it's very difficult for the Nephites to accept that. And this is a big theme in today's lesson. Uh, but that's exactly uh, what's going on. Um, and so he goes to Zarahemla, tells them to repent, and they flat out reject him. And so he's on his way back to uh, whatever land he, he came from originally. We're not really told much about the personal uh, side of this Samuel the Lamanite. And we really don't read much further about him either because in the end he just kind of disappears, uh, never to be heard from again. Uh, but he, he's not from Zarahemla. He goes to Zarahemla. They reject him. He's returning to his homeland. Uh, and then uh, he gets this message. And uh, we're in chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, where it says, And he said unto them, Behold, I, Samuel, a Lamanite, do speak the words of the Lord, which he hath put into my heart. And behold, he hath put it into my heart to say unto this people that the sword of justice hangeth over this people, and four hundred years pass not away, save the sword of justice falleth upon this people. Yea, heavy destruction awaiteth this people, and it surely cometh unto this people. And nothing can save this people, save it be repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who surely shall come into the world, and shall suffer many things, and shall be slain for his people. So the Lord gave him the message that says, you need to go back to Zarahemla and say, whatever it is that I will put into your heart. And it's interesting to note that the Lord did not tell Samuel at the time that he told him to go back what the message would be. But he simply said, go back and say whatever I will put into your heart. Uh, that must have been a very challenging I think for Samuel, if I've just been rejected by a people and the Lord tells me to go back, I'd probably like to know what I'm supposed to tell them when I go back. But the Lord says, nope, Samuel, you go back and I will tell you what to say. And whatever it is I tell you to say, that is what you're to say. And so he goes back to the city of Zarahemla and here in verse 5 we just read, and that's exactly what he tells the people. I'm supposed to tell you whatever the Lord puts into my heart. And that probably would have made it even more challenging for the people to believe him. Uh, you know, what? You don't even have a prepared message for us? You're just going to speak whatever crazy notion pops into your head? So I was like, yep, that's pretty much what the Lord has told me to do. And the crazy notion that has popped into his head is that you guys need to repent. Uh, otherwise, you are going to be destroyed. But the timeline in which he gives them, in which they're about to be destroyed, is interesting. Because he says... Uh, you know, in verse 6, heavy destruction awaited this people and nothing can save them. Um, and when is this destruction going to come in verse 5? It's going to come 400 years from now. <laughs> I, it, it's almost impossible to, you know, put that into, um, you know, to put that into the context in which we can understand. Uh, you know, 400 years ago from today, you know, 1620, the world was an unbelievably different place than it is now. 
And if someone were to come to me today and say, you need to repent, otherwise in 400 years this people is going to be destroyed, I would say, well, if they're destroyed 400 years from now, that's not my problem. That has probably absolutely nothing to do with anything that I can do now. You know, it, it, I, I find this fascinating that the Lord tells them, threatens them, 400 years from now, you're going to be destroyed. I can't imagine the people's response was anything other than, so what? 400 years from now, we're talking many generations removed from where I am now. Um, and you're supposed to use that as a, as a threat that I need to repent. Otherwise, my great, 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 great grandchildren are going to be destroyed. Again, if they get destroyed because of wickedness, that has nothing to do with what I do. Uh, but it reminds me of a of something that I've heard that I, that I believe to be true, which is uh, understanding the difference between uh, a, an impoverished mindset and the mindset of the wealthy. On the one hand, and of course we're talking about things financial here, on the one hand, those who have an impoverished mindset, those who live and think in poverty, uh, think only of the immediate future. You know, I'm hungry and I want something, therefore I will uh, rob a bank to get it, or I will take out a high interest loan to get it, or I will cheat my way to get it. Uh, you know, it's very much focused on the here and focused on the now and not at all concerned about what the future might hold. You know, I really want this thing. I'll take out a high interest loan to get it. You know, if it causes me to go you know, bankrupt in the future or it causes me to pay large amounts of interest or I decide to steal in order to get it and therefore I go to jail, you know, whatever. I'm not worried about the future. I'm only focused on me wanting this thing now. That is a, a, a mindset of poverty. While as we move away from poverty, we get more and more the idea of sacrifice. I want something now, but I'm willing to save for it. And I'm willing to work hard for it. I'm willing to put away uh, some, uh, you know, put forth some effort now so that I can enjoy something in the future. Uh, that's the, you know, more mature attitude towards uh, towards resources and towards the use of wealth. Whereas on the other extreme, you have the, the very wealthy. They're not even thinking about five, ten years into the future. They're planning generational wealth. They're, they're planning a, a legacy uh, for, their, for them and for their families. Um, so they're looking way off into the future. And so if that's, things, if that's true for things that are, that are, are physical, like money, uh, the most base of all physical things, as we as we see, this is their love of money. It's what's getting the Nephites in trouble. Uh, well, then that's likely true also uh, for for spiritual things. You know, as we think of spiritual things, do we have a very immediate focus? Are we only concerned with my spiritual needs for the here and now, or are we willing to make sacrifice for our spiritual needs in the future, and not even our future, the future of our grandchildren, the future of those that we love and those that we care about. Uh, and if that is our focus, uh, then maybe 400 years, even though, again, that is something that's very hard to fathom, that seems very far away, but certainly the threat of destruction and the need to repent uh, far into the future, you can start to think, well, maybe there's something I, I can do about it now. Maybe I can be busy setting a legacy of righteousness for me and for my descendants. Maybe I can be uh, recording my testimonies. Maybe I can be setting a record, uh, creating uh, this gift that will pay dividends uh, to my family and to my posterity in the future. I don't know. For me, that's the only reason I, that's really the only way that I can think of this idea of 400 year as into the future, a destruction coming as being a true threat. But that is what the Lord has put into the heart of Nephi, that uh, he needs to warn them that destruction is imminent, uh, even though it's 400 years into the future. But uh, his prophecies to them and his warnings to them are not limited to the far distant future. Uh, he also has a warning of a curse that's about to come for them uh, to the immediate future, and it has to do with uh, their love of money and their love of things of the world. Uh, verses 18 and 19. 
And it shall come to pass, saith the Lord of hosts, ye are great and true God, that whosoever shall hide up treasures in the earth shall find them again no more because of the great curse of the land, save he be a righteous man and shall hide it up unto the Lord. For I will, saith the Lord, that they shall hide up their treasures unto me, and cursed be they who hide them not up, who hide not up their treasures unto me. For none hideth up their treasures unto me, save it be the righteous, and he that hideth not up his treasures unto me, cursed is he, and also the treasure, and none shall redeem it because of the curse of the land. So this threat that Nephi is giving them has to do uh, with the things of the world that they so desperately love. It, and, and this is where their focus, this is where their attention has been. It has not been on the things of God, but it's been upon the things of the world. And so this curse is going to hurt them, uh, to hit them where they least want it. It's going to hit their wallets. It's going to hit uh, their ability to retain the things of the world, the treasures of the world that they hide up unto themselves and not up unto the Lord. And as they hide them up unto themselves, they are no longer going to be there. They're not going to be able to find them. They are not going to be in the place that they anticipated them being. Uh, their, their sense of normalness, their sense of being able to uh, expect certainty for the future is going to be challenged. Uh, because they are not focused on a future that involves the Lord, but they're focused on the future that they want to build, a future, a future that is uh, based on creature comforts, uh, one that is uh, secured not by righteousness to God, but by the, by the things that they acquire and the things that they hide up to themselves. And so those things that they've relied upon, rather than relying upon the Lord, uh, will become cursed and they will not be able to find them. Verses 21 and 22. Behold, yea, the people of this great city, and hearken unto my words. Ye hearken unto the words which the Lord saith. For behold, he saith that ye are cursed because of your riches, and also are your riches cursed, because ye have set your hearts upon them, and have not hearkened unto the words of him who gave them unto you. Ye do not remember the Lord your God, and the things which... And the things with which he hath blessed you, but ye do always remember your riches, not to thank the Lord your God for them. Yea, your hearts are not drawn out unto the Lord, but they do swell with great pride unto boasting and unto great swelling, envying, strifes, malice, persecutions, and murders, and all manner of iniquities. So here they are warned that they are cursed because of their riches. And the curse of their riches is that they have set their hearts upon them. And so because of that, uh, the riches are cursed. And again, they will not be able to find them. And this is because they focus not upon the God that gave them their wealth, not upon the Lord who made it possible for them to enjoy their comforts, but rather their wealth and their comforts have become their God. That is where they have set their heart upon and because of that, they are their riches are a cursing unto them. We often, you know, it's so easy to get in the mentality of thinking that, uh, you know, as, as we receive some type of material blessing, it is the receipt of that material blessing that that, that is our blessing, uh, that is evidence that the Lord smiles upon us and that we are favored of the Lord. But here in the Nephites' case, they're being told flat out, your riches, your wealth are a cursing unto you, and you are cursed because of them. Um, and, and, and so, you know, we obviously need to take this lesson into our own heart. Are we cursed because of our riches? Have our riches, have our creature comforts, have the things that we work so hard to accumulate, uh, do we put such great stress and emphasis and focus on them that they have become a cursing unto us? Uh, something we need to be very careful of. Uh, verse 31, and behold, the time cometh that, you, that he curseth your riches, that they become slippery, that ye cannot hold them, and in the days of your poverty, ye cannot retain them. I think this idea that their riches have become slippery uh, is, a, is a powerful one. Uh, I remember going to a, a, a dinner 
um, that was put out by a church-sponsored organization, and Elder Christofferson was the speaker. And this was in 2009 uh, during the financial crisis, the, the one that we were confronting them. And he talked about uh, every time he looked at his uh, retirement account uh, from his years of work, uh, how it was getting smaller and smaller as everyone's was, he was beginning to feel how his riches had become slippery. How, how the things that he had worked to accumulate seemed to be slipping away, slipping through uh, his fingers and that we could no longer grasp them and they were uh, leaving away from us. And so I wonder if there's, you know, certainly the, the Nephite society, as far as we know, had not developed comp- uh, complicated you know, financial products that, uh, you know, were, were derivatives based upon uh, various uh, indexes or followed any market uh, that, that, in, that, you know, went up and down in any way that was beyond our control. Um, but, in, 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 you know, in their case, it was much more, at least according to the way Nephi describes it, you know, you place something in the ground and then you return the next day and it's no longer there. Uh, either because it's been stolen by your, uh, by your, by your wicked uh, neighbor who's also kind of in it only for himself and is only focused on, has an impoverished idea where he's only focused on his immediate uh, needs uh, or some other way in which it has disappeared, that, that, that they are not, they're slippery, they're not able to grasp them, they're not able to keep them. Uh, and, and in many ways, our society is based upon uh, a, a, a riches, a desire to seek riches that, that is also very dis- difficult to grasp. But I also like the idea of it being slippery in the sense, not that it's difficult for us to hold, uh, but rather it creates a, a slippery environment for us. You know, think of uh, someone slipping on a banana peel or, uh, you know, one of my favorite toys growing up, the, the slip and slide. You know, do our riches make the path that we are trying to walk slippery? And if they do, do they cause us to fall? Because our path has been made slippery because of our riches. Or do we fall down because rather than walking a sure and reliable path, instead uh, our path has been made slippery because We are not walking the path that the Lord has set for us, but rather we are walking the path that we want to set, a path that is laid down uh, not with righteousness, but with the things of the world. And that is the path that we are walking, and it has become slippery, and we cannot hold on to them, and therefore we slip and fall. Uh, you know, so two different ideas of the of the of the ways in which our wealth, our riches, our things of the world can uh, become slippery. Uh, verse thirty eight. But behold, your days of probation are past. Ye have procrastinated the day of your salvation until it is everlastingly too late, and your destruction is made sure. Yea, for ye have sought all the days of your lives for that which ye could not obtain. And ye have sought for happiness in doing iniquity, which thing is contrary to the nature of that righteous head, which is our great and e- of, of that righteousness, which is our great and eternal head. Uh, again, I, this idea that the things of the world have begun slippery to us, we cannot obtain them. And why is it ye cannot obtain them? We have sought happiness in doing iniquity, which thing is contrary to the nature of righteousness. You have, uh, and you have sought all the days of your lives for that which ye could not obtain. You know, it's, it, they're not real. You cannot hold them. You cannot obtain them. And what is it you cannot obtain? You cannot obtain true happiness, true peace of mind, true peace to the soul. That, that peace that we're all seeking does not come in our wealth. It does not come in having a lot of things because those things are slippery. Those things are temporary. They are not permanent solutions uh, to the eternal problems that we all face as humanity. And are we procrastinating the day of salvation uh, because instead of thinking about the things of the world, we are too, sorry, instead of thinking about the things of God, we are instead too focused upon the things of the world. And so we are procrastinating the things of God, the things of the spirit, because we're too busy with work, because we're too focused 
on the things of the world. I know I, for one, am certainly one who falls into this trap. Uh, you know, how, how often do you uh, go to bed at night not having read your scriptures because you've spent the whole day focused upon the things of the world? You've spent the whole day uh, working or having fun. Not that there's anything wrong working uh, with working or with having fun. Those are essential parts of this life. But are we so focused on working and so focused on having fun, so focused on our immediate needs that we procrastinate, that we put off the things of God because our focus is not in the right place? So those are some of the warnings that Nephi is, or that, that, sorry, that Samuel the Lamanite is giving to the Nephites. This warning that you guys are focused on the wrong thing. You're thinking about the wrong things. Because of that, these things are going to slip away from you. There is no safety in them. You cannot rely upon these things. And in fact, in many ways, they are causing you to slip and to fall. And they are creating your own destruction and they are becoming a curse to you. With that, we move into chapter 14 in which he moves from this, this warning, this cursing about their, their riches into focusing upon prophecies about Jesus Christ. Uh, And so for that, let's read verses three and four. And behold, this will I give unto you for a sign at the time of his coming. For behold, there shall be great lights in heaven, insomuch that in the night before he cometh there shall be no darkness, insomuch that it shall appear unto man as if it was that if it was day. Therefore there shall be one day and a night and a day, as if it were one day and there were no night. And this shall be unto you for a sign. For ye shall know of the rising of the sun and also of the setting. Therefore they shall know of a surety that there shall be two days and a night. Nevertheless, the night shall not be darkened. And it shall be the night before he is born. So here Samuel prophesying about the coming of Christ and the sign that will prove to the world that Christ has come is that there will be a day and a night and a day without a night in between them. And I think this is the perfect, uh, <clears throat> the perfect symbol of the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that because if we believe upon Christ, there is no night. The night of death uh, the, in which we can no longer perform uh, our labors and pre- preparing to return to the presence of God and progressing eternally It never comes if we believe in Jesus Christ. He puts off that death. He puts off that night. And so from this point of view, I think the symbolism of a night uh, that never comes is is the perfect symbol of Christ coming. But for the Nephites, you you can imagine how, how terrifying this must eventually be. You know, it's what more thing is there, what thing is there that's more reliable than knowing that the night is going to come and that night will be followed by a morning, by, by a morning, by a bright morning. There's nothing that's more natural or more reliable than that. And if even that is thrown into question, well, then your entire world has to be thrown into question. If you can't even count upon the sun going down, what else in the world can you count upon? And so one of the threats, if you will, that Samuel is making to the Nephites is, look, you guys think you know everything. You think your life is so set. You're so satisfied. You're so comfortable with your routines, with your understandings of the world, with the riches that you are working hard to accumulate and have set aside. You think that, that everything is just going to work exactly like you think it is going to work. He says, but Christ is coming and he is going to throw everything into commotion. He is going to turn your world upside down to the point that you can't even count upon the night coming because Christ is going to come and he is going to get rid of the night. All of your uh, comfortable uh, processes and, and, and habits that you've developed uh, all, all of these are, are for naught uh, because you can't count upon them. The only thing that you can truly count upon is the Lord. You can't count upon your riches. You can't count upon uh, your, your habits and the procedures that you're used to performing and, and carrying out your normal rituals. Uh, these will be thrown into complete commotion. And I think 
those of us going through 2020 right now can completely rely upon that. You know, there's several things that I, you know, kind of time my life upon. Uh, kids going back to school, kids going to school every day, uh, various sports teams that I root for. Is there, you know, the baseball season always begins in April, and that's how I know summer is coming, and that's shortly followed by the NBA Finals. Well, all, all of this has been thrown into commotion in our lives. It's been turned upside down. The routines that we have been made used to, we can't count upon them anymore. Things that we take for granted, uh, or that we used to take for granted, are no longer the way that they were. Uh, and, and so here as I stand in 2020, uh, I can somewhat relate to how the Nephites must have felt as the routines that they were so used to uh, are, are turned upside down because there was a day without a night. And this is exactly what Samuel is prophesying to them about. You cannot rely upon your routines. You cannot rely upon the world of comfort and, and certainty that you have created for yourself. Because the only certainty, the only lasting comfort is found in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and so their whole world is going to be turned upside down by, by Jesus Christ. Um, and this is already starting. And evidence that this is already starting in their lives is the fact that they have a Lamanite prophet coming and teaching them the gospel. Now, one of the things the Nephites have been able to count on for hundreds of years is, well, at least we're not the Lamanites. At least we're no, more, more righteous than our Lamanite brethren. But this has also been turned completely upside down. Verse 10. And now because I am a Lamanite and have spoken unto you the words which the Lord hath commanded me, and because it was hard against you, you are angry with me and to seek to destroy me and have cast me out from among you. So again, their, their world, their typical order of things, their, their normal patterns and routines are completely thrown off, thrown out of orbit. And it's already starting as evidenced by the fact that they have a Lamanite prophet coming and teaching to them. And they rejected him solely because he was a Lamanite. Solely because he was not one of them. And so, again, the message to us should be clear that we cannot get too comfortable in our normal routines. When Christ is in charge of our lives, you never know what is going to happen. Your routine might be one day completely upended, not because of something you did, but because of something that you need. Something that, uh, obviously, Christ coming as, uh, as surprising and as unexpected as it was for them is obviously absolutely 100% essential for their salvation. It's an unbelievable blessing that Christ has come into the world. But it's thrown up, thrown up their routine. It's totally turned their lives, it's going to turn their lives upside down even to the point that they can't count upon the sun going down at night. So just because our routines are disrupted, just because the Lord has a, a path or a plan for us that is different than the normal routines that we are used to, uh, doesn't mean that he's abandoned us. In fact, and it very well might mean that it's time for us to grow. It's time for us to learn something new. But in order to learn those new things, we have to get out of our comfort zones. And we have to sometimes put down and put away the routines that we are used to and that have provided us so much comfort. Uh, verses 12 and 13. And also that ye might know of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, the creator of all things from the beginning, and that ye might know of the signs of his coming to the intent that ye might believe on his name. And if ye believe on his name, ye will repent of all your sins, that thereby ye may have a remission of them through his merits. Interesting that these signs will be given for the intent that ye may, might believe on his names. You know, how often in scriptures do we read that signs come after we believe, that they come after faith? Well, here Samuel's clearly teaching them that one of the reasons the Lord is going to give us these signs is to help us believe. But it cannot be a shallow belief because it says in verse 13, you believe on his name, if you believe on his name, you'll repent of your sins and you'll do so through his merits. So it's not just a simple you know, confession is like, okay, yeah, that was a cool sign. Yep, I believe. No, that belief has to be followed up by action. Uh, the action that is most important, of course, is the action of repentance. And repentance is always what naturally follows one that believes in, that truly believes in Jesus Christ. It's never enough just to say, oh, I see the sign. Yep, I'm convinced. 
that, that conviction must always by, be followed up by appropriate action, by repenting, by changing our lives to conform with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Verses 15 through 17. For behold, he surely must die that salvation may come. Yet behooveth him, and it becometh expedient that he dieth to bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, that thereby men may be brought into the presence of the Lord. Ye behold, this death bringeth the path the resurrection, and redeemeth all mankind from the first death, that spiritual death. For all mankind by the fall of Adam being cut off from the presence of the Lord are considered as dead, both as to things temporal and to things spiritual. But behold, the resurrection of Christ redeemeth mankind, yea, even all mankind, and bringeth them back into the presence of the Lord. Like many prophets, Samuel is preaching about a first death here. And in the next verses we'll read, we'll see he's talking about a second death as well. But he uses these terms a little bit differently than we often see in Scripture. As Samuel talks about the first death, he's talking about the fall. He's talking about the separation that we experience from God. And the only way in which we can overcome that separation, and it seems to be an actual distance, a physical separation from God that he is talking about, the way in which we overcome that is through the resurrection. Because it says in verse 17, it's through the resurrection that we are redeemed and bringeth them back into the presence of the Lord. So we are cut off from the presence of the Lord because of the mistakes that we make, because of the fall. We are physically, in addition to spiritually, physically separated from him. And it's that because of resurrection, where, which are bodies and our spirits are brought back together again. It is only through the resurrection that we are able to be brought back into the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, the way in which the reason we're brought back into the presence of the Lord uh, because of the resurrection is so that we can be judged. And so this promise, this which in many ways is a threat, but the promise of judgment from God, which comes as we are resurrected and brought back into his presence, this judgment that is in some ways so terrifying that something we're all so concerned about, this presence is the way in which we over this, this sorry, this judgment in which we're brought back into his presence is the way in which we overcome this first death. At least that's the way that, that's the spectrum that Samuel seems uh, seems to see things in. Uh, and now let's read about this second death, uh, verses 18 and 19. Yea, and it bringeth to pass the condition of repentance, that whosoever repenteth the same is not hewn down and cast into the fire, but whosoever repenteth not is hewn down and cast into the fire, and there cometh upon them again a spiritual death, yea, a second death, for they are cut off as to things pertaining to righteousness. Therefore repent ye, repent ye, lest by knowing these things and not doing them, ye shall suffer yourselves to come under condemnation, that ye are brought down unto this second death. So both deaths that Samuel is speaking about as he's prophesying have to do with being cut off or separated from God. The first death happens as we leave God's presence and come into this earth. And then we are brought back into his presence and the first death is overcome uh, when we are resurrected and brought before him to be judged. But then potentially comes a second death in which if we are judged to be wanting, if we have not repented of our sins, if we have not relied upon the merits of Jesus Christ to overcome our, 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 our spiritual shortcomings, then comes the second death in which we are again uh, cast off from God's presence. We cannot be with him because we are not worthy. We are not able to be with him. And that is a second death. That is a spiritual death. And that is the permanent death that Samuel is warning us against. That Christ will help us overcome both of these deaths so that we can not only return to God's presence, but that we can also stay in God's presence and we can become, we can remain with him forever and to become like our heavenly parents. Those are the two deaths that Samuel sees in the way that Samuel phrases these deaths and that he understands uh, the plan of salvation and the essential role of Jesus Christ. Uh, so he, and so after teaching them of Christ and the importance of Christ in overcoming both of these deaths that are inevitable for both of us, uh, he then goes on to tell them of the destruction that is going to take place upon the Savior's death. And, and this is 
something that many of them are going to live to see. Uh, this is only about six years before Christ comes. So Christ's death is only 38 years away uh, for these people. And so this is something that many of them are going to actually uh, live to see. And it, so, but obviously Samuel doesn't give them the exact timeline. Rather, he simply tells them Christ is going to come. He's going to be born. You're going to see this sign of his birth. It's going to throw your world into commotion. And then many years later, this Christ is going to die. And his death is essential. It unlocks resurrection, making it possible for you to overcome both of your deaths. But at the time of his death, again, your world is going to be thrown into commotion. Everything you thought you knew, everything that you relied upon, everything that gave you comfort and was dependable in your life, uh, giving you the routines that made you uh, your lives predictable and comfortable, are going to be thrown into absolute chaos and commotion as there is earthquakes and storms and darkness and a chaos beyond anything that you can understand. That is going to be the sign of his death. So, you know, the, the theme should be, you know, very clear, both upon Christ's coming and upon his death. Uh, chaos is going to ensue. Everything that you thought was reliable is going to be turned upside down. And, and that is something that we can expect, both as we prepare for the second coming. Increasingly, the things that we uh, expect in our lives uh, are going to be turned upside down. Certainly, again, coronavirus and the way in which our society has been turned upside down because of it, I think can only be interpreted as a as a sign that the second coming is not far off. I'm certainly not predicting a specific date or saying it's going to happen soon, but but this this idea that our world is brought into commotion, uh, you know, our normal routines are thrown upside down uh, is is to Samuel the Lamanite uh, a sign that Christ is coming and that his arrival in our lives is not far off. And of course, on a much more uh, micro level, uh, to those of us that accept Christ as God, to those of us that strive to follow him, we should not be surprised when our lives are turned upside down uh, because of our acceptance of Christ and the things of the world that give us comfort and that provide uh, normalcy and routine for us, those cannot always be relied upon. But the only, because the only thing that we can truly rely upon is Christ, his love for us, the plan, his plan for us and for our lives. That is the only thing that is uh, certain and that can be certainly uh, relied upon. Verses 30 and 31. And now remember, remember, my brethren, that whosoever perisheth, perisheth unto himself. And whosoever doeth iniquity, doeth it unto himself. For behold, ye are free, ye are permitted to act for yourselves. For behold, God hath given unto you a knowledge, and he hath made you free. He hath given unto you that ye might know good from evil. And he hath given unto you that ye might choose life or death. And ye can do good, and be restored unto that which is good, or have that which is good restored unto you, or you can do evil and have that which is evil restored unto you. So in this world in which our lives uh, are uncertain, in which there is going to be chaos, in which the things that we think we know, the, the, the normal orders and routines of our lives uh, could potentially be turned upside down, as Samuel the Lamanite is telling the Nephites is going to happen to them, there are some things that are within our control. And what is that? Behold, he hath given you a knowledge and he hath made you free. We are given the knowledge of the plan of salvation. We are given the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are given knowledge of Jesus Christ and we have the freedom that is necessary to act upon that knowledge. So what is in our control? We are in our own control. We can control how we react to the chaos, how we react to the situations in our lives. And though nothing will, can ever be truly permanently a routine for us while we're in on this world, and though we can't rely upon the things of this world to permanently bring about uh, comfort, even you know, tempting as it might be to try, what we can control is ourselves. What we can control is the way that we react to the challenges of our lives. We can act in faith, in Jesus Christ, trusting upon him, 
acting upon the knowledge that we have received. And so as we move to chapter 15, then, uh, let's read verse 3. Yea, woe unto this people who are called the people of Nephi, except they shall repent, when they shall see all these signs and wonders which shall be showed unto them. For behold, they have been a chosen people of the Lord. Yea, the people of Nephi hath he loved, and also hath he chastened them. Yea, in the days of their iniquities hath he chastened them, because he loveth them. So message is clear here. Nephites, the Lord has always loved you. The Lord has always looked favorably upon you. You've always been a chosen people. And when bad things have happened to you, it is because the Lord has desired to call you to repentance, to remind you of your reliance upon him. Remember last week we talked about how uh, Nephi sealed up the heavens and caused a famine uh, to come upon the people. And he did that solely for the purpose that the Lord, that they would turn back unto the Lord. Because the wars that with the Lamanites that previously had caused them to turn back to the Lord seemed to be losing their effect, were no longer working. And so in the midst of their wars in which they were still not repenting in the ways in which they needed to, the Lord sent a famine to them to call them unto repentance. We talked about how sometimes in our lives, if things aren't going well, the Lord might send something even that seems to be worse to, to outsiders. But if it's for the purpose of having us return back to the Lord, then it is not worse. Uh, then it is truly a blessing in our lives. And that's the, 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 the paradigm that the Nephite society has been based on for so long. That the, the Lamanites, their brethren, these uh, you know, these lazy warmongers who are always doing bad things and never calling upon the Lord. Their sole purpose was to uh, remind the Nephites of their dependency upon the Lord. And then in verse 4, he states that uh, the Lamanites have been hated uh, because of or by the Lord. And, and this can seem like a, an odd thing to say. Um, but uh, scholar, uh, LDS scholar David Bakavoy, he used... Uh, this is, is evidence of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon and that this notion of the Lord loving the Lamanites, loving the Nephites and hating the Lamanites, you know, is not, does not symbolize the passions that he feels for them, uh, but, but is used in, in a similar way in which the Lord described uh, the Ephraimites in the Book of Hosea, in which he says he hateth them as well. And it's why, does it he, why did he hate the Ephraimites? Why does he hate the Lamanites? It's because of their wickedness. And what it means is that they are not part of that covenant relationship. They are outside the boundary of the covenant. And so because of that, they do not enjoy that oneness with God. Because they have not repented and have not entered into the covenants with him. And so that is what is mean, meant by he loveth the Lamanites because they repented. Or, or sorry, he loves the Nephites because they repented and they were in that that sacred covenant relationship with him, where the Lamanites, on the other hand, uh, they historically at least retained their wickedness, never repenting or entering into covenants with the Lord. And that's why the Lord, you know, hateth the Lamanites, according to verse 4. So it's, it's always important to keep in mind these incredible dynamics between the Nephites and the Lamanites, and to have Samuel, a Lamanite, come and teaching the Nephites about these things. Again, totally turned the normal course of action, the way in which things are normally done, completely turn it on its head, turn it upside down, and was very, very difficult for the Nephites uh, to accept. Uh, verses 5 and 8. And I would that ye should behold that the more part of them, meaning the Lamanites, are in the path of their duty, and they do walk circumspectly before God, and they do observe to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments according to the law of Moses. Verse 8. Therefore, as many as have come to this, ye know of yourselves are firm and steadfast in the faith and in the thing wherewith they have been made free. Getting back to this idea that uh, the thing that we can control is ourself and we are made free in the knowledge of the gospel. And as we act upon that knowledge, that is the only thing that we control. That is, what we, that is where we are truly made free and truly empowered by God. 
Again, this world has been turned upside down and he, he, the, the Lamanites are the righteous ones. They're the ones, the more part of them are striving to keep their covenants and they're repenting when they make mistakes. And then in verse 9, he uses the example of the, of the Lamanites bearing their weapons of war and being willing to be killed rather than take up their arms again. Clearly a, a reference to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Uh, you know, it's speculation on my part, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if Samuel the Lamanite was a descendant of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's as he, as he pulls upon, draws upon this story. He even could have been one of those stripling warriors. This is, uh, this uh, Samuel the Lamanite comes about 60 years uh, after the, the event of the stripling warriors. So one can certainly imagine a, you know, 14, 15 year old Samuel the Lamanite going off to defend his people and protect the Nephites in his youth. Then 60 years later is a much older man now he is a prophet, has the spirit of prophecy with him. He's been righteous his whole life. He comes to Jerusalem to tell uh, this Nephite people that, you know, previously he took up arms to defend that it is necessary for them to repent now. Pure speculation on my part, but I like to think of Samuel the Lamanite as being one of those stripling warriors. Uh, verse 14. Therefore I say unto you, it shall be better for them than for you except ye repent. And this should be a very dire warning to us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, those who claim that we have the fullness of the gospel, that the Lord has given so much unto us, so much light, so much truth, so much knowledge that uh, we should be grateful for. With that blessing comes enormous responsibility and also a, a heightened standard that we should uh, aspire to live to, uh, that we have to, we have to repent, we have to be uh, better, we have to be the best, we have to live up to those high standards that we, uh, that we claim to believe in. Otherwise, uh, it will not be better for us. It would be better for those outside of the church that don't have the same high standards because they're, you know, large majority of them are just doing the best that they can. And, you know, the best that they can according to the light and knowledge that they have. And if we claim to have more light and knowledge, then, the best, then our best ought to be better than their best. It's that simple. Uh, chapter 16. Uh, so, so interestingly, those that believed in Samuel as he finishes up uh, his, his teachings... Those that believed in him uh, went and sought out Nephi, and they were baptized by Nephi. They re repented and admitted their sins to Nephi, and then were baptized by him. So, you know, very interesting that, uh, you know, Samuel himself did not do the baptizing, as we see is normally the case for, uh, for prophets that go and preach repentance. Um, but rather, they, they went and sought out Nephi. Uh, so, so interesting that rather than seeking a Lamanite for, uh, for baptism, they went and sought uh, one of their own. And so that was a portion of the people. They heard Samuel. They were like, okay, yeah, what he's saying is true. We need to repent. We need some changes to make. And so they seek out Nephi. They're, they're baptized or potentially rebaptized um, as, as evidence that they uh, are humbled and that they want to repent. But many instead reject Samuel and try to kill him, slinging uh, arrows at him as as, as you know, famously associated with Samuel the Lamanite, standing on a wall, having arrows shot at him. Uh, verse 3, And now when they saw that they could not hit him, there were many more who did believe on his words, and so much that they went away unto Nephi to be baptized. So two groups that go to Nephi to be baptized. One is those that hear the words of Samuel the Lamanite. They are struck in their hearts, and so they go and find out Nephi to repent. And then there's another group that initially uh, were not struck in their hearts and initially did not, because of the words of Samuel the Lamanite, seek out Nephi for baptism and repentance. But when they saw that those that, were, uh, that, that did not believe in him were trying to attack him and trying to do him harm, but were unable to do so, that is the instance, that is the, the event that caused them to repent, that pricked them in their hearts and that said, uh, that, that, you know, that, that initiated uh, their movement towards Nephi uh, in order to repent and be baptized of him. Uh, so, you know, sets a, you know, establishes the importance of us being good examples. We cannot let Satan's fiery darts hit us. 
we, we cannot be overcome by the world. We have to set that example because we never know who's going to be watching. And we never know when it is something that we say or our ability to not be impacted by the things of the world uh, that is going to be the example that somebody needs in order to uh, help them on the path towards repentance. Uh, but others reacted to him um, by and his not being hit by the arrows as proof that he had a devil within him and, and, and evidence that they should be rejecting him. Um, and, and so Samuel sees that his life is in danger, he eventually climbs down from the wall and is never heard from again. Uh, verse 14 and angels did appear unto men, wise men, and did declare unto them glad tidings of great joy. Thus, in this year, the scriptures began to be fulfilled. So we're beginning to have prophecies that are coming to pass about the birth of Jesus Christ. And I just found this verse, verse 14 interesting, that we have angels coming to wise men uh, in preparation for the coming of the Savior. Certainly sounds familiar. It sounds like the nativity story, right? In which uh, angels came to wise men, uh, and, and, and told them as, as the wise men sought out the star uh, to, to, to seek the birth of Christ. You know, wise men and angels and the birth of Christ all coming together, uh, both in the Americas as it did uh, in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, verses 15 through 18, and this is where we will, we will finish. Nevertheless, the people began to harden their hearts. All save it were the most believing part of them, both of the Nephites and also of the Lamanites, and began to depend upon their own strength and upon their own wisdom, saying, Some things they may have guessed right among so many, but behold, we know that all these great and marvelous works cannot come to pass of which has been spoken. And they began to reason and contend among themselves, saying that it is not reasonable that such a being as Christ shall come. If so, and he be the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, as it has been spoken, why will he not show himself unto us as well as unto them who shall be at Jerusalem? And these verses to me are just sad. Samuel and prophets for generation had taught them that Christ was going to come. He was going to offer salvation to them. He had given them signs that they could recognize to know that Christ was coming and that his coming was inevitable. And as these signs come, people start to rationalize them away. You know, verse 17, they began to reason and to contend among themselves. You know, and how perfectly does that describe the world in which we live in? As we rely upon reason, as we rely upon the ability to, to, to justify and to rationalize away faith, we lose so much. And it's something that we need to be careful of, even those that are faithful. Uh, you know, there, there's, it's very easy to rationalize away certain things, uh, certain spiritual things, certain feelings that we've had our whole life. As we, as we grow in experience and as we're exposed to the things of the world, it might become easy to, to rationalize or to justify away uh, some of those things that uh, have, have made a difference in our lives and that have been so important to us throughout the rest of our lives, uh, throughout our lives, just as these, just as the Nephites did, uh, explaining away the miracles that are around them. It is my hope that we will always be able to maintain the faith that is necessary so that when we see miracles around us, we will be able to recognize them as miracles. We will be able to recognize the hand of God in our lives. And instead of rationalizing everything away, putting up everything as being nothing more than a coincidence, saying, yeah, maybe somebody guessed something right, but that's not evidence that they're a prophet. That's not evidence that God knows me. That's not evidence that there is a God and that he cares about my life. It is easy to rationalize these things away. In some ways, it is easier than to simply have faith in them because faith can be hard sometimes because our worlds are turned upside down. And, and, and this is, again, the theme of this lesson is that our, the world is going to be turned upside down because of Jesus Christ. We cannot find uh, comfort uh, in the material things of the world, not a lasting comfort. It is tempting to try to do so. And it is comfortable to explain away everything. It is comfortable to rely upon science and say, 
well, that seems like something that we don't understand, but here's a possible explanation for it. There's comfort in that. What's uncomforting is knowing that we're not in charge of things. What's uncomfortable is knowing that there is a God up there who came 2,000 years ago and completely turned the world upside down, so much to the point that you couldn't even count on the sun going down uh, at the end of the day. And it's that same God that has a tendency to, to, to disrupt our comfort that is telling us, give me control of your life. Turn yourself over to me. Let me be in charge. Give me the steering wheel and let me take you where I want you to go. That is uncomfortable. And it is easy to rationalize that away so that we are not made subject to those discomforts. But it's my testimony that as we rely upon Christ, as we turn the wheel to him, as we accept the fact that not everything in this life is going to be predictable, and there's two ways that we can turn. We can be like the Nephites uh, that Samuel the Lamanite taught and that we can turn to our wealth and turn to our riches and turn to the comforts of the world, which are slippery, which will cause us to fall, which are not reliable. Or we can turn to Christ, who is reliable. He does not cause us to fall. In fact, he is the one that falls for us. Love the imagery where he says he has trodden the wine press alone. What that means is they used to take the grapes and put them in a wine press. And what they would do is they would get a number of people together. And then as people were stepping on the grapes to get the juice out of it, it would become slippery and people would fall. But as you had a group together with your arms interlinked, you could rely upon each other and not fall. But Christ, he trod the wine press alone. And it was difficult. And he slipped. And he, but, but he didn't slip and he didn't fall because of his, uh, because he was perfect and because of his atonement. And so we can rely upon him when things get slippery. We can rely upon his strength when things become uncertain. If we rely upon our wealth, rely upon our riches, rely upon the things of the world, they will become slippery. They are slippery. They will cause us to fall, but Christ will not fall. And if we have faith in him, we also will not fall. We can't rationalize that away. We can't look for the comfort of the world. We can only look for comfort in Christ. And I hope that we will do so. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.